Okay, good morning everyone. Good morning. We're going to jump back into chapter 12 of Proverbs, which Steinman in his commentary labels all of chapter 12, Righteous Behavior, Part 2. Chapter 11 was Part 1. And we had finished last week on a little suite, uh, three overlapping, interconnected parables spanning from verses 9 through 11. So we'll pick back up there to just get a running head start into the new material. First, an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so, chapter 12, verse 9 of the Proverbs. Better to be lowly and have a servant than to play the great man and lack bread. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. So if we tie these together in terms of their common denominators, so to speak, then we'll see living within your means, being humble, nose-to-the-grindstone kind of attitude, and this is more profitable than grasping for what does not belong to you, what is not attainable, living outside of your means. I don't know, it's kind of indicting of, of our lifestyle here in Orange County, isn't it? Where so many people live beyond their means and it's flashy. Better to have substance and, and no flash than flash and no substance. Okay, so then on to the new material at 12. Whoever is wicked covets the spoil of evildoers. Ouch. But the root of the righteous bears fruit. So taking the first half, whoever is wicked covets the spoil of evildoers, is like the reflection you come to after you've fully digested Psalm 73. Why do the wicked prosper? And then he concludes that their time of prospering is short, and it's short-sighted to look at them with any sense of envy or to accuse God of injustice. It's short-sighted. So here's the mature reflection. Whoever is wicked covets the spoil of evildoers. (laughs) So when you look at evildoers and you say, oh, look at all the stuff they have, It's wicked to covet that spoil. And indeed, I think, so yeah, is that accusing? Certainly is, driving us to Christ, who is our righteousness and our salvation, driving us to a proper attitude. But I think that in terms of pure exegesis, what Solomon's point is, is rather, since we are not wicked, since we are of the righteous on account of Yahweh's graciousness in Christ, then let us not covet the spoil of evildoers. And indeed, sometimes you can even come to pity them, because if not for all their money, 
keeping them, quote-unquote, happy, they would not be blind to the Lord. Take away their money, take away their comfort, they might actually have their eyes open to their need for the Lord. And so sometimes you can look upon the extremely wealthy with a sense of pity. They're blinded, as it were. And it would be objectively good for them to suffer the loss of that idol that they might come to the knowledge of the true God. Okay, so what's the contrast? Again, wicked. Whoever is wicked is contrasted with the righteous, which is our identity in Christ. And the spoil of the evildoers, you know, evildoers, they work, they're evil, they get spoil from that evil. That's the fruit of evil. But here contrasted, the root of the righteous bears fruit. So the righteous bears good and righteous fruit. But probably in view here is that the root itself bears fruit. That is the tiniest remnant. It's a strange way of saying, and I don't mean to overread it, but maybe I will anyway. And that is even the root, even the smallest amount will bear fruit. So think of ill-gotten gains. Think of all the industriousness. Think of all the energy spent accumulating. Think of all the massive wealth. What does it profit? Nothing. In fact, it becomes a millstone in the day of judgment. But contrast that with the righteous. Even the root, even the smallest part, bears fruit, and that fruit lasts unto eternity. It's truly profitable. Okay, well, I think that gives the general sense of that proverb. On to 13. An evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips. Probably your mother's told you something like this. Don't lie, because then you have to remember your lie. And usually one lie begets other lies, and all the lies are almost impossible to keep straight. We're just not as smart as we think we are. And so an evil man ends up ensnared by the transgression of his lips. And I think that that's, you know, obviously the lying example is a subset of that, because any transgression of the lips ends up ensnaring the person who speaks. So, of course, Jesus says out of the out of the mouth comes the abundance of the heart. So that's a, <laughs> that's a bit of insightful analysis in terms of looking at your own speech. But then likewise, and this is going to continue in the next proverb, this idea that what comes out of our lips isn't just given unto the world, but what comes out of our lips continues to have effect upon us. So obviously then, in the background, is taking great care with what we do with our mouths. An evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous escapes from trouble. So the Lord grants that escape. You know, interesting that the immediate contrast isn't with the lips, it's the escape from being ensnared. The escape from trouble is granted by the Lord. The evil man is ensnared by his lips. 
And I think you'll see how this connects very closely with 14. It's hard to meditate on one without the other. From the fruit of his mouth, a man is satisfied with good. And the work of a man's hand comes back to him. So again, this idea of what comes out of your mouth, your words, and what comes from the work of your hand, your deeds, comes back upon you for good or for ill. You speak evil, you do evil, evil befalls you. You speak rightly, you do rightly, that goodness returns unto you. All of this is simply predicated upon the fact that there is a God. He is watching. We don't get away with anything. He promises to bless us um, and bless all who love him and keep his commandments. So basic, small catechism, large catechism, doctrine 101, what you do matters and will be revisited upon you. And I don't know, that's like law and gospel. (laughs) It's law in the sense that what you do that's evil will in fact come upon you. That's like the law reflection. And that's like viewing law as a power, not as an arbitrary set of rules. And then likewise, the gospel aspect or the blessing aspect is that God cares about what you do that's right. And he imbues that with meaning and he promises to reward it. So it fills our lives with meaning and purpose our thoughts that result in our words and our deeds, which is completely contrary, completely contrary to the spirit of this age, which says whatever you do, it doesn't matter. You can't move anything. You're too small. You're too unimportant. It's all up to you to just decide what you want to say and do for yourself. And if you say and do it, well, then it's divinized immediately and Simultaneously, it has no real or lasting effect because there is no God who sees, there is no judge, there is no consequence. Kind of the implications of the quote-unquote unbearable lightness of our being in this, you know, I don't know, postmodern <laughs> is kind of understating our context where we've become completely ungrounded from the idea that there is consequence to what we say and do. Okay, let me pause there. That, that gives us some fuel for conversation, if you do want to have any dialogue. All right, I'll come back to you once you've had a little more coffee. So, verse 15 then, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. All right, here's the, here's the extranos principle in a different context, the outside of us, the man who is solipsistic, turned in on himself and listens only to himself, and whatever he does is right in his own eyes, and he won't uh, subject himself to the judgment of any other. This person is plainly decreed a fool by God. So you can think of your favorite tattoo, only God can judge me. That's the tattoo of a fool. So the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Boy, just because I think it, it must be true. 
That's the, that's the mark, the essential mark of a fool. A wise man is turned outside of himself and listens to the advice of others. So to be turned outside of oneself and listen to the advice of others. What would be the pitfall of that? What's that? Depends very much on who you listen to. So you want to listen to the right kind of people, and the right kind of people, according to Proverbs, are going to be those people who are well-informed in the wisdom of God and who are going to speak that wisdom to you. So if that's true, then you also preclude this idea that you just be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine because you're talking to people, advisors, who are grounded on the solid rock of God's word. If you were to take this advice generally and just you know, listen to whomever, you would just be tossed one way or the other. You just become a kind of, uh, I don't know, when you toss grass up in the wind in the, to see which way the wind's blowing, that's all you become. So you want to be having, obviously, the right advisors, but then as you turn outside, you get better counsel. And this is especially true for... Um, I think the younger you are, I'll I'll go out on a limb here a little bit, but I think the younger you are, the more acute the consequences are. I think it's universally true. But I think the younger you are, the more acute the consequences are. Because when you're young, the the truth is you don't see as much as you think you do. That's one of the curses of being young. Your reason might be right, insofar as the data set you're perceiving, your decision may be the correct one, but the problem is you're not perceiving the whole data set. And that's what old people can really help you with. They can get, and you should really listen, especially when it comes to these big things like, what should you do with your life? Who should you marry? Big life issues. How should you spend your Friday and Saturday nights? You should really listen to the old people God has put into your life because they're going to have perspective. And that perspective can come because they did the right thing or because they did the wrong thing. Either way, they've learned and they would much rather you learn from wisdom, from receiving advice, than to have to go make mistakes and learn from those. A much more painful way to learn. This is behind the sentiment of even the Lord saying to us not to be like a stubborn mule who must be turned with bit and bridle. That is, heed his word and do it. The alternative, because he loves you, is he'll get you to do the right thing, but it's going to be like you, a stubborn mule, and him with bit and bridle turning you there by force. And that force is going to be the uncomfortable consequences of your foolish pursuit. Okay, so I've probably... uh, this is the, isn't this the biggest problem with, um, with all young people? I think so. I know I've suffered from this. Probably if you reflect yourself, you've suffered from this. Maybe one of the biggest steps to maturity is you start to go, maybe my thought isn't the only valid thought in the universe.
Okay, on to 16. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. So it's the second half that really gives us the sense of this word vexation. The vexation of a fool is known at once. So when someone insults a fool or does something unpleasant to a fool, he immediately becomes irritated. He immediately becomes vexed. So I know that this is going to be a, you know, as is so much of this section, a bitter pill to the old Adam within all of us. But being short-tempered or impatient is to be curtailed because it's a path of foolishness. Something we want to repent and fight against. I mean, ultimately because it's the outcropping of a proud heart. That's really where the sin of anger, unrighteous anger, comes from. Anger that derives from man. And so to be vexed as soon as there's any kind of insult or something doesn't go your way or something doesn't go right is the mark of a foolish person. By contrast, the prudent ignores an insult. So the insult comes and you realize that that's... Okay, well, you can do this a number of different ways. Some of the church fathers will say when receiving an insult, they gladly accept it. And indeed, kind of double down and say, yeah, I'm that, and you don't know the half of it. (laughs) So someone comes up to you and says, you idiot, and you're like, how do you know me so well? But not well enough. I'm more idiotic than you can even perceive. That's one way of handling it. Kind of a, I think, a full humility, as long as you're not saying it is just a verbal joust. But then likewise, to just have somebody insult you to your face and just ignore it and try to listen to what they actually have to say. Maybe there's wisdom there. Maybe there isn't. But how are you going to know if you've received the insult and you've become vexed and you've closed your ears and your heart rate's up and you're in fight or flight? So here is, again, I mean, a very challenging Proverb, as all of them are, I think in general, but especially in this section perhaps, we see what it means to be conformed into the righteousness of Christ, ignoring an insult. And Jesus' passion is a masterclass. The only one who is ever truly innocent, being falsely accused, being lambasted, having lies told about him, opens not his mouth. When He's cursed, he does not curse. When they revile him, he does not revile in return. So Christ, and his, through his passion, is a master class in the fulfillment of this particular and all of these proverbs. Okay, at 17, again, hovering however loosely around this theme of advice and speech, Whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. Yeah, and that's probably the most straightforward, even though there's a little grammatical ambiguity here, probably the most straightforward is the idea that the truth is based in evidence and evidences itself. 
But when a false witness speaks, it's empty, it's vacuous, it's devoid of evidence. Very often, it's simply an assertion. And there's nothing wrong with assertions. Luther says in his Heidelberg Disputation, I think, that taking pleasure in assertions is one of the fundamental traits of a Christian because Christians simply assert the truth. But that truth is based in God's word and based in objective fact. The assertion of a fool or the assertion of a false witness is not based in Scripture, not based in objective fact. It's just empty. Okay, 18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. This is very much... Let me see if I can find it here. Very much like the dynamic in verse 4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. Recognize, wives, that how you are and how you act has profound impact upon your husband, and if upon your husband, upon your entire familial life. The same thing, I think, in terms of a dynamic is true in this proverb as well. That you have immense power based on what comes out of your mouth to kill or to heal. To wound or to heal. To kill or to give life. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. That's wounding and killing. But the tongue of the wise brings healing, and if healing, then life. So it's to pay attention to the immense power of your own tongue for good and for ill. So again, this hovers around the idea of speech and the tongue and the ways in which that is used profitably or unprofitably, the ways in which that's received profitably or unprofitably. Um, Very much like James' advice to be slow to speak, you see the connection between rash words, quick words, being fast to speak, and the sword thrusts. Very much similar to the vexation of a fool is known at once. If the first thing out of your mouth is a shotgun blast back, then you're acting in a way that in all likelihood is foolish and damaging. So to be slow to speak, quick to listen, and then to speak in a way that brings healing. Now, I don't think, I don't think in, if we read this in light of the other Proverbs, I don't think this means some platitudinous thing like, always say nice things. Or, If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. I mean, while that has some general wisdom to it, it also fails the Jesus test. Jesus himself had sharp things to say and harsh things to say. And so was he 
not healing through those words? No, indeed, he was healing through those words. But here we see that healing can also take on the analogy of surgery. The cancer has to be removed with the scalpel. That's painful. That's sharp. But it's only done in service of the ultimate healing of the person. And the balming, healing words can come later. So I think that we don't want to get some sort of platitudinous reading of this idea of healing as if this just means saying nice, fluffy things all the time, because it doesn't. I think what it really means is having the good, and specifically the good health, spiritual health, of your neighbor in mind, and to let whatever you say be for that end. Okay, let me stop there, because I saw the mic going around somewhere. There it is. Yeah, I got it. I like the link between 15 and 18, where the fool that is right as in his own eyes, he's always the, cool, the quick one to assert his position, right? He, because I'm always right. I'm, I'm going to tell you why I'm right, and he's going to be the guy that's jumping in immediately and, and with his, what is right. Mm-hmm. And he's going to be the one also with the rash words, mm-hmm. Uh, coming in, charging into a situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the wise man, almost in, in patience, l- listens to the advice mm-hmm. and receives advice. I mean, th- there's an element of, there is a, a humble position there of, of, of humility, of sitting back and listening to that. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, then in the advice that he receives, he then also can speak with words of healing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I don't know if I, we can tie those two together like that. I think you uh, absolutely can. I think it's, yeah, I think it's good too. I think this whole section kind of overlaps maybe 15 through 20 or even 22 kind of overlap in their themes. It's hard to know. But I really do like the connections you've made there, and I think that that's true. I, you know, you see a generality here. It doesn't mean you can't speak quickly or decisively. There's a time in which you, you need to do that. So with all Proverbs, there's like these exceptions, but the exceptions just prove the point, and the point is that you not act in a rash or foolish way, that you don't let your lips start moving before your brain has done the processing, right? That you don't be quick to speak, uh, but be slow to speak and quick to listen, right? So these themes are tight, taken up by James in the same vein. So, right, to sort of, and to be thinking, I think, to the ultimate goal of not how can I win this argument, but how can I get my, how can I win my brother might be a better way to put it. Not how can I win the argument, but how can I win my brother? What needs to be said, whether it's scalpel or balm, to work healing in this person? That's like love expressed verbally. So yeah, I like your reflections. No, um, but no I find that most of them. life is a contest and I'm going to win. And yeah, so I'm right, going to tell, right. and I'm going to charge into every situation. I'm going to, I'm going to come in going, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to win this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and my I'm, brother, and I'm, I'm, I'm always angling myself to make sure that I'm. Mm-hmm. 
And that's and my brother needs to lose so that I can win. And by the way, that's a confession, so I'd, I'd appreciate. I, I need <laughs> yeah. some absolution, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. That's well. That's all of us. I mean, we are we are dealing with the law. We are dealing with um, you know. You could say in Christians, the fruit of the spirit. That's true. But in so far as we lack it, that stings. So yeah, I think I think as we go through these, and you know, this is the problem with any text. You start crawling through it really slow meticulous, you lose the forest for the trees. And so zooming out upon the forest, we're righteous because Yahweh declares us righteous in Christ. He does not count our transgressions against us. Because he loves us, he doesn't impute our sins to us, but has imputed them to Christ once and for all. We're set free from the accusation of the law. And now the law is set before us as something in which we can delight and aspire to. That's St. Paul's theology. So, indeed, we'll delight and we'll aspire and we'll kick ourselves but, and, and kind of afflict ourselves, but in that same way we kick and afflict ourselves in the gym because we want to be better, right? We want to be more like this. Okay, any other reflections? Let's move on then. At 19, truthful lips endure forever. But a lying tongue is but for a moment. What a great proverb. Truthful lips endure forever because they speak the truth and the truth endures forever. But lying lips pass almost immediately where is it? I just lost my place. Lying to- the lying tongue, that is, is but for a moment. Obviously, you can see the connection here between the one who is the truth and the one who is the liar, and the liar from the beginning. So, truthful lips endure forever. Those are lips that speak the truth. Christ is the truth. And a lying tongue comes from the liar, from Satan. And it all lasts just for a moment. That's the nature of lies, though, too. It's one of the biggest lies our culture has fallen for. I think it probably flows out of this idea of evolution that we all have sort of imbibed. And evolution is, it's all getting better and better all the time. And so since that's the way it is, uh, then we would only be wise if we modeled our social and cultural structures on that basis, where it's just always getting better. So we always have to progress and progress and progress what that is in reality is just one lie after another. So the biggest lie of all being evolution, that we're evolving and getting better, the second and and symmetrical lie that progress is good, (laughs) cancer progresses, not all progress is good, and then the idea of the specific idea of progress in our culture has just been here's a lie, everybody please accept it today and approve of it tomorrow. And tomorrow comes along and we approve of it, and then we're saying, here's the new lie that you need to accept today and approve tomorrow. And on and on we go down the path of just one lie after another, lie after another. So we can see then. I mean, this isn't, un- this isn't particularly unique to our culture. Um, all worldly 
cultures, all fallen cultures are going to exhibit these traits, some more obviously than others. And our, our system, I think, I mean, I would, I would challenge anyone with eyes to see and ears to hear to give me a contrary reading of our culture, but our culture is uniquely based upon lies. And the institutional capture of our media and of our schools perpetuate those lies in such a way that anyone would speak against them is immediately ostracized and outcast and usually labeled with slurs like racist or fill-in-the-blank-a-phobe or whatever slur and attack can be la- uh, someone could be labeled with in order to make them appear noxious to others. Kind of like Antifa. We're going to be anti-fascist. And everyone's like, oh, okay, that's great. We're going to be anti-fascist by being the fascists. What? <laughs> so the, the lies in the actual name itself, like um, one of our politicians, maybe I won't name her, said something to the effect of like, we need to cancel all contrary voices to ours in the media so we can stop the spread of fascism. Hello. <laughs> so it's lies built on lies built on lies. All right. Well, and then, no, let's not do that. That's fine. Okay, so... Again, in, I think here is like encouragement as well as reality that as we speak the truth, as we live not by lies, to borrow a phrase from Solzhenitsyn, we are living in a wise way. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Okay, 20, deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil. And, you know, I think, I think as you meditate this, you can see that those who are devising evil are often, very often, self-deceived. They think they're doing what is right. Their hearts are deceived, and so they devise evil. They listen not to the truth of God's word, so they end up listening to the liar, and being deceived, they deceive I think that's what this is getting at. But those who plan peace have joy. A more literal or wooden translation, um, those who are counselors of peace have joy. So I think you would, as you would reflect on the first part that Deceit in the heart produces evil. Here, peace in the heart produces joy. That would probably be one facet of this diamond. And maybe that's enough. I think it's fairly straightforward proverb. Okay, 21. No ill befalls the righteous but the wicked are filled with trouble. Yikes. So if you feel like your life is filled with trouble, you must be... Is that what this is saying? (laughs) 
No ill befalls the righteous. How do you think about that? There's a hand. I think we have to think about it in the fact that none of us are righteous. Okay. Even if we are Christian, even if we're doing the good thing, we're still not righteous. Christ is our righteousness. Okay. So if I suffer ill, yeah, maybe it's because of something I did right now. Maybe it's not. But I'm not righteous. I can't claim that I've done everything right. Yeah, yeah. I, a fair reflection. A fair reflection. I look at it, Christ declares us righteous, Mm -hmm. so what ill can befall us? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What can they do? They can only kill us, right? Right. Right. You've told us that. and And you have his promise that he will work all things for the good of those who love him. Yeah. So I think both reflections are true and biblical reflections. Absolutely. And... I think they're both understandable, um, particularly if we view, as so many texts out of, the, out of the New Testament speak, if we view what befalls us as not accidental or not sheer raw retribution, but as the discipline of a loving Father who's conforming us into the image of His Son. So, okay, good. And then what about this? What about the opposite side? The wicked are filled with trouble. What do you think? The wicked are trouble. <laughs> nice. Okay, that's a very valid reflection, too. They're filled with trouble because they are trouble and they produce trouble. Okay? Good, good. Any other reflection? I think of our Lord's words where he's speaking of the blindness of sin, and he says, even if their light is darkness, how great is the darkness? So when you look at an evil person, let's just take an obvious unbeliever who's in the media all the time. You probably have someone in mind that I don't need to fill in. Okay, many... (laughs) Right? This is not the hardest part of the class today. <laughs> that, okay? An unbeliever who's obviously and manifestly wicked, okay? they, even the good that they think they're doing is wickedness. Even their light is darkness. How great then is the darkness? And all the good that they're, that they're doing, we should put good here in scare quotes, all the good they think they're doing is actually evil, and heaping up judgment upon them. So that there are many people in America, many politicians who believe that, well, when I'm standing before the judgment seat of God, this is going to be my resume. These will be my merits and the things that I'm patted on the back for. No, those will be the very things read against you in accusation. So I think that there's a, a way... I would not say the only way, to reflect on the wicked being filled with trouble. It certainly doesn't read true superficially, this proverb does it, that if you're a good boy, everything goes good for you. Who has that ever worked out for? What, what, What character in the Old or New Testament 
or save our Lord our, our himself. Um, yeah, if you're a good boy, it goes good. No. If you're wicked, it goes bad. So it invites deeper reflection. Good. All right, 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. So this is very much akin to chapter 11, verse 20. Those of perverse or crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord. So here, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. But those who act faithfully are his delight. And likewise, look at the parallel, the latter half of verse 20 of chapter 11. But those of blameless ways are his delight. So lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. And I think the assumption here is that God's people do act faithfully and do are the delight of the Lord. Do we do this always? No, perish the thought. But we do act faithfully and thus delight the Lord. I mean, otherwise this is just like, otherwise it all kind of falls apart and doesn't make any sense. But those who act faithfully are his delight, so precisely no one is his delight. I don't think that's what it's saying. Those who act faithfully are his delight. Very much like our epistle lesson, where it's a gracious thing in the sight of God, Peter writes, um, when you suffer for doing what is right. You say, well, maybe there's nobody who suffers for doing what is right. No, of course there is. And that's encouragement that God sees it and is pleased with it. So to hear, to act faithfully, is his delight. You can think of um, Daniel. Did he act faithfully? Where did he land? In the lion's den. What about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Yeah, they acted faithfully. I love their statement. Eh, Whether God saves us or not, he's still God. (laughs) And we're not going to bend the knee. That's like such gritty piety. I love it. It's just like, yeah, well, we'll see if he saves us. But either way, it's just fantastic. So those who act faithfully are his delight. And you've got, uh, you know, you've got all kinds of biblical figures from history who act faithfully here, maybe unfaithfully there. And that's encouragement to us to act faithfully in our lives simply because our lives aren't written in the scriptures. And I kind of think, thanks be to God. <laughs> uh, it doesn't mean they're any less biblical. It doesn't mean they're any less theological. It doesn't mean that God isn't looking upon us just as he looked upon countless other faithful saints in the Old Testament whose names aren't recorded in the books of Scripture. He simply sees and delights where he sees faithfulness to him, whether that's big or small. And whether that's like this immediate profound Jesus moment or whether it's just this small, almost nonchalant thing, I think of the widow who gives her mites and she doesn't even know that the Lord is sitting on the hill watching her, calling his disciples over and saying, look at that. I mean, that's delighting. And then for millennia, millions if not billions of people are going to, because Jesus points to that woman, look at that woman who was none the wiser but who was acting faithfully and we're going to marvel and delight in her and aspire to be. 
Okay, so those who act faithfully are his delight. 21, a prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. All right, one facet of this diamond, and I think it it ties in with that idea of slow to speak, that a prudent man, even when he knows, doesn't simply blurt it out. Have you ever encountered the guy who knows everything? Is, is he fun to be around? <laughs> a prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of a fool proclaims folly. That is, the heart of the fool is, hey, guess what I think? And immediately thinks because he thinks that it's glorious and right, and everybody should profit from his gloriousness and rightness. So the heart of a fool will proclaim whatever immediately comes to his heart, because obviously it's divine. And so he's constantly... Speaking, we know people like that too. So the heart of the fool proclaims everything, especially folly, whereas a prudent man conceals his knowledge. He knows when to say it, when to speak it. I think a delightful proverb because of its breadth and scope. I've simply, like I said, given one read, one facet of its application. 24. The hand of the diligent will rule, or the slothful will be put to forced labor. Okay, here is one of many proverbs that encourage industriousness and encourage against slothfulness. Now, there are certainly dangers in being overly ambitious and constantly putting oneself forward, and constantly trying to climb and conquer. But if that's one sinful ditch we want to avoid, the other is, I'm so zenned out, I'm just going to go with the flow. And the flow is telling me it's nap time again. (laughs) Okay, So the scriptures really do encourage diligence, Um, And you even find this in the New Testament with the idea that the time is short. The days are evil and the time is short. I mean, Luther reflects on this so wonderfully, and I'm paraphrasing him. He's like, he says, no saint arrives in heaven and goes, gosh, I wish I would have worked less. I wish I would have done fewer good works. I wish I would have lied a little more. I wish I'd been a little more cowardly with the truth. No, every single person when they get to heaven says, oh my gosh, I knew this was true, but did I know it was true? And if I knew it was true, why didn't I act more boldly? Why didn't I spend myself? It's so short and so evil. Why didn't I give absolutely everything, lay it all on the table and leave nothing? That's the sentiment. And I think that's the idea here ultimately of diligence as we sort of take this from its very obvious, earthly, grounded reality that, hey, the early bird gets the worm, and whoever works hardest is going to end up at the top as general rules, while the slothful and the slow are going to end up serving those who are diligent. Well, all of that's true, I think, as it elevates into a spiritual reality, you realize that the saintly and the wise recognize the evil days and the shortness of those days. We apply ourselves because we've already been granted by faith to rule with Christ. 
And thus will we continue to rule with him. Whereas the spiritually slothful who reject Christ, who don't understand the purpose of life, end up having their faith choked out by the cares and pleasures and riches of the world, and they end up in the slavery of hell. I mean, I think even, even there's sort of pagan kind of wisdom to this. Again, it's both earthly, but has its, its spiritual reflection, even though those who promote it who are pagan don't understand the reflection. And that's this idea, I think, um, some uh, Navy SEALs said it, but it's like discipline equals freedom. So diligence equals freedom. It's the idea that when you're diligent, you rule over things. When everything's in its proper place, you can do more. I mean, that's true in an earthly sense. It also has a sort of spiritual reflection. Whereas if you're slothful, because what's the nature? So the nature of diligence is nose to the grindstone and discipline is this and this and this. You end up way more free it's one of these paradoxical things. Then you go, I'm slothful, I'm sloppy, I'm just going to... And you end up being controlled. So that's the paradox. One who's slothful thinks they're free and ends up in a kind of forced labor, being disciplined by others. Whereas one who is disciplined in himself ends up ruling and being a master over himself and the others around Okay, so diligence versus sloth. Sloth, of course, one of the spiritual seven deadly sins. Apatheia, achadia. All right, let's see if we can get a little further here. 25, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. Ooh, isn't that true? When you're anxious, exactly how productive are you? Zero, which makes you more... Anxious, which makes you do less than zero. Yeah, you see. Okay, so anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. And isn't that great? So, again, this is like you got to get outside of yourself. I think that's if you sort of read it in the first person way. Anxiety, like the more you sit and stew internally, the worse it's going to get, the less you're going to do, the more anxious you're going to get. You're in this spiral. What you need is to listen to something external to you. I think that's this idea. A good word makes him glad. So that's why we need to hear preaching and God's word on an every week basis so we don't fall into this kind of spiritual anxiety. How might we view this in a, from a different angle? That if we see in our brother someone who is anxious and being weighed down, and the anxiety is festering and more and more weighed down, how should we view this? That it should be incumbent upon us to come and speak a good word, and make him glad, and lift the weight, and stop the cycle. That's the idea. So, sports psychology, you're in a batting slump. The more you think about your batting slump, the more you're in a batting slump, which makes you think more about it. So you need a coach to come to you and say, stop it. <laughs> Remember that this is a fun game. Stop caring. Lift up your heart. You're not the only one who's been through this. Get your mind on something else. 
and it'll come when it comes. And that's exactly what you need to break out of that cycle. So you need, you need somebody to come change your thinking, external source. So we can both deliver that and we should look to receive that and be humble enough to receive that from others when it comes. So look at this. I mean, I think when you put these two together, you've just got some, you've got some profound spiritual medicine in these verses. Because anxiety is rampant. Slothfulness is rampant. Nihilism is rampant, even in our Christian hearts and minds. And here you have medicine from the Word of God and medicine that directs you to the medicine He's going to provide in the people around you. With the idea being that you'll recognize it for what it is and receive it in humility and be healed. We're not doomed to just stew in anxiety and sloth and nihilism until we die. That's not what God has for us. Okay, so again, this idea of what's outside 26, one who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor. So not only do we want to receive the advice from others, that's one aspect of extra nos outside of ourselves. But here's another aspect, that we realize we're outside of others and we're uniquely poised to help them. So one who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor. Now, a guide isn't overbearing. That's a, that's a ruler or a dominator or a dictator. So here's some of the art of wisdom. And I think a popular ex- cultural example will help. Be Yoda to Luke. Okay, Yoda is there to help Luke find his path and find his way. And whatever Luke is doing, Yoda is offering some guidance. But he doesn't say, hey, do it this way. Follow me. Say what I say. Do what I do. Let's go right now. Um, This is how we're going to gain victory. That's not being a guide. So a guide allows for the freedom, and I think parenting is such a wonderful example of this, because the more you try to force yourself upon your kids, the harder you grab, the more it's going to like squirt out from between your fingers. <laughs> the more your control over them isn't going to be control at all. So you realize you're guiding, hurting cats who don't like to be herded. But that's the idea. So a One who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor. You don't want to be overbearing, but you don't want to leave them to their own devices. You want to guide them on their path. But the way of the wicked leads them astray. So again, inherent here is the idea that the way of the wicked, they're simply leading themselves astray. They're going to lead others astray. It's always easy to be wicked. What is good? Let's be against it. That's easy. It's slothful. It's lazy to be wicked. Evil is lazy and uncreative. It's the same thing over and over. It's also like, oh, you want to be free from the law of the Lord? So go sin. All right, do it again. All right, do it again. All right, do it again. Are you bored yet? Because that's all there is. That's all there is to the freedom that evil sets before us is repetition of the rebellion. All right, whoever is slothful, 27. I'm going to try to press through 12 here. Whoever is slothful will not... Roast his game. (laughs) But the diligent man will get precious wealth. Yeah, the lazy man won't even do that which is good for him. He won't even cook the own meal so he can sit there and feast. 
I don't know. This is kind of like what we call depression today. I don't know how much of what we call depression today is in fact between the ears as much as it's in the heart and a spiritual condition, perhaps far more than it is a condition requiring medication. Especially, by the way, when you look at the results of that medication, when you look at how good uh, antidepressants are over and against behavioral therapy, they're basically identical. So even if you're thinking of it as a psychological thing, you need to reckon with that. But I think, spiritually speaking, you've got this idea that like, you won't even do that which is good for you because it's work. So again, that kind of resonates with this idea of the good word outside of him makes him glad. Okay, but with the diligent man, or excuse me, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. So the man who's diligent versus the slothful, he won't even help himself versus he'll be able to help himself and help others. So there's two paths. Don't be, de- don't be depressed because depression feeds upon itself. And it's, a, it's that same kind of swirling down the drain. Okay, 28 in the path of righteousness. And I say don't be depressed like it's a choice. It kind of is. I'm sorry to be so countercultural with that, but it kind of is. Because depression feels good. It feels good and then it feels terrible. And then you want to feel good again. So it's this spiraling down of like, oh, but I'm depressed. And this conscious adaptation of a set of attitudinal principles that, by the way, goes with a set of behaviors. If you, do, if you want to be physically fit, do you wait till you feel like it? Or do you thrust yourself onto the treadmill or the gym? Exactly. So the same is true for depression. It's just nobody's saying these things because it's not culturally polite. But if you want to be done with depression, thrust yourself into those things that are going to get you undepressed. You're not going to feel like it. Okay. And I don't mean to be insensitive. If you want to talk to me later, talk to me later. So in the path of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. Yeah, again, because you have Christ versus Satan, life versus death. So I think that that one is an easy enough capstone to this section. Next week, we'll be looking at a wise son and wise ways to live. So again, reflecting on the dynamic of father and son. And 13 will be part one. The Lord be with you.